sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. An hour before Democrat leaders were scheduled to go to the White House to meet with the president to talk about rebuilding our nation's infrastructure, the Speaker of the House actually accused the President of the United States of engaging in a cover-up. There is an itch in our caucus for impeachment, but let's not uh, deal with that yet. It's not just the Speaker Pelosi. Adam Schiff done this for two years, lied to the American public. Chairman Nadler, people ought to look at this. When he ran for chairman of the committee, you know what he went to his Democrat friends to say why to vote for him? Because he was the best person to be in place to impeach the president. And now, Stacey Washington. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to the program. Stacey Washington, thanks for making your home here at American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. So excited. We have a fantastic show for you today. I want to start off with this. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's Psalm 90, verse 12. I love Psalm 90. It's chock full of wisdom and, and things that we can meditate on to encourage us and keep us strong in the faith. Welcome to the program. We're going to be chatting with Colonel Alan West here in just a little bit. We also have good friend and uh, free enterprise project purveyor. And also um, he, he is in leadership over at the National Center for Public Policy Research, David Almasi. Um, so we're going to be chatting, having a fantastic show. Uh, I want to get to this this first, first thing that is going on. And, and I've seen it online on Twitter. I've engaged a couple of these Hollywood elites and these stars who keep saying this. And it has to be addressed on the show. And we'll get it out of the way. And then, of course, it'll be, you know, our regular Good News Friday type thing. And that is there's this argument that is buttressed by studies that abortion cuts crime, that if people abort babies, women abort babies, specifically if black women abort babies, it's not a big deal if the black abortion rate is, you know, twice that of the lowest rate for the demographic, another demographic, that means nothing bad. In fact, it's a good thing. In fact, we can get excited about it and we can be grateful for black women aborting those babies because the babies they're aborting are actually criminals. Yes, that's what people are saying. Now, I want to go into the research side of this because if, if we just talk about what's happening on Twitter where many, many, many villages of idiots dwell, that's going to kind of leave this subject open for the wrong kind of interpretation. I understand that one of the things that young Democrats, especially high school and college age Democrats who support abortion will say is, well, don't you wish they had abortion around back when Hitler's mom was pregnant with him? Because if she had aborted Hitler, then 6 million Jews wouldn't have been killed. This is spurious logic. It doesn't hold up with the weight of, of proper scrutiny, but it also goes to the heart of this idea that we can orchestrate plan and control what happens in humanity with actions that we take now outside of the space that we dwell in as believers that in a sovereign God who is in control at all times. Our earth has been infected by sin. We are, we're not immune to it. We can't escape it. And the idea that we can just abort the bad people before they ever get here also flies in the face of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross to save us from our sins and the opportunity for people to be redeemed. So I got that out of the way. Here's the background on all of this. Way back in 2001, <laughs> I'm saying way back because, you know, kids think that was a super long time ago. John J. Donahoe 
and Stephen D. Levitt released a controversial paper arguing that legalized abortion reduced crime because the abortions called out individuals who were at a higher risk of criminality. Now, the study was immediately subjected to withering technical criticisms. Most notably, John R. Lott and John E. Whitley ran a different analysis suggesting that abortion might have actually increased crime. There was also a 2005 paper, which was updated in 2008 by Christopher L. Foote and Christopher F. Gutz, pointing out that major coding errors and um, you know other methodology mistakes made the results, they, they weren't correct. So when the methodology was fixed, then the results actually skewed in the other direction. It's actually a fact that um, you can take the error out and once you've corrected everything, then you find that abortion is actually linked to higher crime rates. So never mind all of that. We're not going to see Democrats or anybody who's peddling abortion for a living admit that this is the truth. They'll just spend another 18 years going back and forth and then update their, their little incorrect study and push it back out again. It's wrong. It's incorrect. But they're just going to keep peddling this. And so the reason I'm bringing it up here on the show today is because this is not a sound justification for abortion. And I know there are always going to be people out there who are searching and, you know, overturning every rock over, looking under every snail, you know, forcing their uh, immoral views about abortion onto other people and blaming other people when it's found that they, they have no logical, feasible argument. But the fact is, we're seeing this now because, first of all, the, the mask has been ripped off. Democrats aren't pro-choice at all. They're not for safe, legal and rare abortion. They're for abortion on demand at every stage of pregnancy and afterwards, and therefore the decriminalization of women Bear, who, who are carrying children, having those children killed by someone else in a homicide, losing the baby or their own life in the, in the midst of all of that as well. They're, they're against the criminalization of that kind of dastardly behavior. Just look at New York's law. And then on top of those facts, they're perfectly willing to lie about what they truly believe in order to make it feasible to convince other people to join them. This is pure evil, pure evil. So there are no stunning crime reductions that you can directly link to higher abortion rates. And 40% of all black babies are not going to grow up to be criminals. I don't care what you're being told. That is not true. And the very moment we decide that we're going to stand against this, and, and this is my rallying cry, if you're someone who you're, you oppose abortion, but you don't pipe up when you hear other Christians saying, well, it's not for me, but I can't you know, decide what another woman's going to do with her body. You got to stand up. The reason that these arguments that the Democrats are making in support of abortion are becoming more and more radicalized is one, they don't have science on their side anymore. Before we knew more, they were able to claim that unborn babies didn't feel pain. They were able to claim that it was just a clump of cells. Now we have images of every stage of human development from the very moment that a, an embryo is fertilized to birth. We know that these are human beings. And we also know that 
there's really once once you get to the age of viability, a baby can be born prematurely and not just live or survive, but thrive and grow to be a, a just just like any other kid. You can't tell the difference between these kids. We also know that it's wrong, morally repugnant to punish uh, a baby that comes from rape or incest um, by killing it by simple virtue of the sinful act of its father. And we know that abortion hurts women in so many other ways. The emotional toll, the higher rates of suicide and self-harm, the higher rates of depression, the actual link between aborted uh, abortion, post-abortion women, so women who've had uh, reproductive loss through abortion, and their children having higher incidences of behavioral difficulties. Abortion negatively impacts the life of the, the mother and her spouse, whether it's current spouse or future spouse, and current children and future children. There's no escaping the inequities here. It's harmful from the very moment the woman makes the decision to do it, and the ramifications are something that she has to live with for the remainder of her life. Now, there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and there's redemption. It's at the feet of the cross. Anyone can have it. But it doesn't take away the consequences of our actions. When a woman has an abortion and she comes to know forgiveness in Jesus Christ and gives her life to him and starts walking in that forgiveness, it doesn't take away the memory of the abortion. It doesn't remove the fact that she knows that she has one less child than she could have had. It doesn't change the regret. In order to change the tide here, we have to be honest about what abortion is. It's murder. We have to be frank with women who are considering this, that they will always regret the decision and that it will never be something that they can undo. And we have to be courageous in standing up against the culture of death that is so prevalent in this country that has spread. It used to be unthinkable to say that we would have assisted suicide doctors, people to help uh, you know, someone who's terminally ill kill themselves. It used to be unthinkable that it would even be something that you could discuss infanticide being legal. And it was utterly ridiculous to say that if someone killed a pregnant woman, they only killed a woman, they didn't kill a woman and a baby. There is no magic switch where At one moment, it's a clump of cells and something to be destroyed. And the next minute, it's a baby that everyone's celebrating with a baby shower. It's simply a matter of deception. When a baby is unwanted, it's a clump of cells and something to be gotten rid of. And it's a choice, a euphemism for murder. But when the baby is wanted, it's your unborn child and you're going to have a girl or a boy and you're talking about the future. That's the kind of dichotomy that liberals can live with all day because they don't have ideas that work and they're steeped in lies and really the sinful practice of everything that the Bible says do not do. But for people of faith, we don't have any room. There is no space in which we can dwell where we don't have an opinion on abortion. There's no safe, you know, honorable position that you can hold that involves silence on this issue. One day, we'll all have to answer for our position on this. And we don't want to be found 
to have wasted opportunities to speak the truth into the lives of those around us. Remember, our ministry is wherever we are. And God uses us in amazing ways to accomplish his will on the earth, but we have to be willing to act. So it's praying at the, the Planned Parenthoods. It's, and that's just standing outside the Planned Parenthood praying. There's, there, it's not like in the movies. There, there aren't confrontations. There, a lot of the things that you're seeing that are being promoted as the norm, I've never, I've never actually had that happen. And even if it does, God goes before you. There's nothing to fear. It means giving money to pregnancy resource centers and organizations that provide the ultrasounds, et cetera, to these women to help them understand what's really there inside their tummy, inside their womb. It's speaking the truth in love within your own circle. You don't have to be constantly talking about abortion. It's not that you have to make it your primary conversational subject, but if it comes up, you have to be prepared to tell the truth about what it is and why you're against it. And then there's the issue of us spending time in prayer, asking God's forgiveness for the sin of abortion in our land and asking him to give us revival not just in the most pro-life generation, the young people of today, but in the older generation that has been so harmed and so maligned by abortion, post-abortive women numbering in the millions who silently suffer, thinking that their agony is something they have to deal with and they can't ever find any peace from it. There is peace from having the sin of abortion in your history. Whether you're the man who helped get make it happen or a father or a mother who said, look, you have to do this to your daughter. It's, it's, it doesn't matter what your role was. There is forgiveness. So I'm asking you, let's, let's join together. Let's all pray about what God wants us to do in this area. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, who makes all things possible in you, you go out and do whatever it is that God has for you to do. I guarantee you, you won't regret the new friendships you'll make and the feeling of being obedient. It's what God wants us to do as Christians and people of faith. All right, I'm Stacy Washington. Be right back. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, I'm asked often what my favorite part of the Holy Land tour is. And that's like choosing between your children, right? That's very hard to pick just one uh, place to see or to visit that's the most special. But to me, uh, it's the boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, I guess, is number one. That's just a very special day because you know that's exactly where Jesus was, the Sea of Galilee. We're seeing the same terrain that Jesus saw. But there's so much more to our visit to the Holy Land, our trip there in March 2020. We'll go to Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Jericho, Nazareth, and on and on. If you want more information on the tour to Israel, go to twholyland.com. That's twholyland.com. 
Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a legacy moment. Leonard Scott is a trusted friend and colleague. For years, he served as my executive assistant. His loyalty and commitment to me and what God has called us to do is humbling. If you would look up servant in the dictionary, you would find a picture of the guy we affectionately call Scotty there. That's Leonard Scott. Many times he went beyond the call of duty to make sure I had what I needed or to relieve me of some of the pressures associated with my ministry. I am humbled and I appreciate and honor the sacrifice and commitment of this servant of the Lord. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, there's an account of some guys, kind of like loyal staff members, who made a great sacrifice for David. Verse 15 says, And David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Notice, they took the initiative in fulfilling a desire. Secondly, their active service became an opportunity for worship. Then number three, he valued and understood the price of their service. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. Don't take for granted those who sacrifice in order to meet your needs and to minister to you. Why don't you do something special to honor them? Legacy Moment is a production of Moody Radio. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the program. It is my pleasure to welcome Alan West, American political commentator, author, retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel, former member of the U.S. House of Representatives. He is on the board of the National Rifle Association, of which I am a member. And um, he's just uh, always such a pleasure to have you on, sir. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure to be with you. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again. You know, last time we were together, I believe it was in Atlanta, for yeah. the NRA uh, annual meeting there. so Yeah, it was nice. This year I couldn't go because I was in Tupelo broadcasting for share for the radio program, and then my mm-hmm. son's birthday was that Thursday, so I had to leave there and get back home as quick as I could to be with them. Um, That's so more I missed. It, it is, but I, I hate missing the annual meeting. It's so much fun, and I do get to connect with like you and, and so many others who come to be together during that time, which this year... It was really interesting because the media tried to paint what was going on as some, you know, the end of the NRA. It wasn't that, but you've had some really kind of, you were right at the center of everything being a board member. Can you kind of update us on where you are there with the the National Rifle Association, Wayne LaPierre, et cetera? Well, I I continue to say, based on a statement that I put out last week, that, you know, I believe that Mr. LaPierre should resign. I believe that this is a critical point for the NRA to get refocused on its core competencies and mission. Uh, I think there's some organizational reform that uh, we need to have. And I believe that anybody that uh, continues to try to dismiss some of the things that have happened that are out there, some of the allegations that have been brought forward, uh, you can't do that. Uh, We have a serious fight. 
when you look at the uh, disarm America, the gun confiscation, progressive socialist left, and we need to have a very strong, very resolute uh, National Rifle Association that does not have some of the distractions that it has right now so that we can get on to the business of making sure that the American people can continue to uh, you know, enjoy the right to keep and bear arms, and, and that's a right that shall not be infringed. Okay, so you covered a lot there, Alan, and I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go right into it. I always give a disclosure whenever we talk about the NRA. I've written for them. I have been paid for my work by Ackerman McQueen. And I know that there's a lot to the story. And if, if you've been reading up on it, you understand that this isn't just internal fighting. There are allegations of mismanagement of member funds. And if you're a member, mm-hmm. you know you're, you're sending these funds in because you want to see them. The, the, the National Rifle Association sues states on behalf of us they, to, to protect the Second Amendment. And the NRA actually puts training in schools and my kids have all been through Eddie Eagle. So I, I believe in the cause. Mm-hmm. And so this was really upsetting for me when I, especially when I read your statement last week, I was like, Whoa, I, I know you, I respect you a great deal. And when you say you think Wayne LaPierre should leave for me, that's one of those ones where I, I can't ignore that. Um, what, what do you see happening next? Cause I know they're aware of your position but they've also reiterated that he was voted it back in by acclamation and all of that stuff. So what what's going to happen now? Well, you know, that's an important question that needs to be asked. I know that a lot of members received a letter that went out yesterday, uh, and I can tell you that I have seen some responses back uh, where members are just incredulous that there would be that sense of arrogance or even that sense of belligerence to, to just really try to shake this thing off. You know, member money cannot be going for someone's personal gain. Uh, and we have to be a 501c3 uh, not-for-profit organization that is focused on our issue advocacy and not some of the other things that, sadly, the National Rifle Association has gotten involved in, to include, like, Carry Guard, which uh, I think opens up the box for the investigation, which we have from the New York Attorney General, uh, Letitia James, which is where the, the NRA was incorporated and, and remained incorporated uh, there since uh, 1871. So I, I think that that's the, the, the real issue. And, you know, just found out by uh, via the news uh, yesterday that the National Rifle Association has opened up a second lawsuit against Ackerman McQueen. So it's these type of things that are very disconcerting for uh, some of us that are on the board that really want to see us uh, clean out our house so we can get back to doing what the NRA is supposed to do and what our members expect us to do. Well, for my part, you know, and I don't know all of the background. I'm not an NRA board member, obviously, but I know the people at Ackerman McQueen, and I'm kind of surprised by the allegations that are being leveled at them, and I tend not to believe. I, I have to see evidence before I would believe any of that. Um, with the carry guard, I know that was something that was promoted heavily last year. I haven't seen as many advertisements or anything for it this year. Your your assertion is that that's not a, a, a that's not an avenue the NRA should be going down with member funds. No, it should not because again, if you're saying if you're a not for profit organization, five hundred one c three, and you're about issue advocacy, now all of a sudden you're getting yourself involved in a uh, conceal conceal carry insurance program, which is for profit. And that's kind of a conflict of interest of uh, what your original charter is supposed to be. And that is why we have had this uh, little investigation opened up. And and the whole, uh, I guess, road that we're on 
because we are incorporated in New York, and therefore you have to be in compliance with New York laws and rules mm. and regulations, and there were some gaps where we weren't. So, mm. again, let's get back to our core competencies, which is you know training and educating on the shooting sports, marksmanship, like you say, Eddie Eagle, school shield programs, things mm-hmm. of that nature, but then also defending our Second Amendment rights. Well, I, I tend to agree, um, and I'm I'm just – I'm actually – really comforted by the fact that you're there and you're on the inside on the board and that you're adding your voice to this conversation, especially when it's it's not popular to go against, you know, the, the note that they sent out. It doesn't specifically mention you, but it definitely kind of goes against a couple of the public statements that you've made. And so it takes a lot of courage, which that's not unusual for you. You are always at the tip of the spear when it comes to bringing well. the truth forward. Um, but I'm 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 glad you're there. I'm glad that we're able to have this conversation and to continue because well, the NRA know, Stacey, has to be there. Yeah, go Stacey, ahead. It's, it's, it's very easy for some people to, you know, stand up and point their finger at the person that says something. But you know, we have this mantra going around the country says that says see something, say something. And you used to be in the United States military, and whenever you go to a rifle range or weapons range, the range safety officer already says. Anyone that sees an illegal action going on, they have the uh, right ability to say something about that. I don't care if you're the youngest private or whomever. You're supposed to you know, say something if you see a wrong act being done in a situation. And, and I'm not going to sit around and just go with the current. I think that you know, I am entrusted by the members who voted me in as a board member to be a good steward of their resources, just the same as when I was a member of Congress. The constituents asked us to be good stewards of their resources and good governance. So that's where, you know, I have to step aside and say, we've got some problems here. I'm glad. I'm glad that you're you're there. Um, so turning to another topic that was huge this weekend, mm-hmm. this is the Morehouse College graduation. The commencement speaker is a philanthropist and a billionaire. Um, he has his own investment firm, and he's he's a very successful black man who at the announcement, during the address, he says, I'm also going to pay off um, all of the outstanding student loans for the 2019 graduates of Morehouse College. And it was immediately cast about. I mean, we had family in town for our son's high school graduation. They're like, oh, it's so great. But I, I felt kind of hesitant to celebrate because there's something about this to me that stinks. And then I read your article on this. What's your take? My take is that this is a you know really big participation trophy. You know, adults sat back and looked at kids that uh, weren't getting to play in the Little League soccer or baseball games and everything, they came up with this little plastic trinket called a participation trophy to help their self-esteem, make them feel better, make them feel like they were included and they contributed something when they did not, instead of taking them off to the side and uh, saying, hey, let's help you to develop your, your athletic skills or what have you. We have to raise young people to be responsible and accountable. And they cannot believe that someone's going to come riding in on, you know, the little white chariot and say with the the magic wand, you know, bling, everything is, is all gone. All of your troubles and woes are taken care of. And that's what I think happened here. Uh, you know, now what is the expectation for someone to go to a commencement address and make the same address? Or what is the expectation? Oh, let's all invite Robert Smith because He'll stand up there at the podium, and he will take care of all of our college student debt. Uh, or what is the expectation for some of these kids that will go out into the workforce? Let's say they drive up their own personal credit card debt and what have you. Then do they go to their employees and say, 
you need to give me a raise so that I can help uh, erase my uh, credit card debt or some of the other debts that I've incurred. Maybe it's a gambling debt. And so I just think it was not a good lesson for young people uh, to, to, to learn from as they get ready to go out into the workforce. Yes. So, so well put, because my, my thing as a parent is we've been talking to our kids about college and how to prepare for it academically. And then as they entered the last couple of years of high school, the conversation turned to how do you pay for it, scholarships, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And we put it on them. We said, look, we're, we're committed to paying this amount that we've set aside for your college education. If you choose a college that costs this much, there's a difference there. You need to have scholarships and et cetera. And we discourage student loan debt. And so our kids have chosen to go to colleges that are not as expensive, but are more focused on STEM. So then after yeah. that, it's more, well, which, which dorm should I live in? This was a conversation we had, uh, you know, a few months ago. Hey, where, where should we live, mom? You know, I'm, I'm, this dorm costs 1800 more. There's this one and there's this one. And we talked about it and she made a choice that was cost effective yet still met her needs because she's not relying on student loans where she can say, I'm just going to go get an apartment with some friends and you know, a thousand a month is no big deal to me. That's never mm-hmm. a conversation she's going to have because she knows she has to help fund this. And and if she's graduating, you know, in, in four years when she's walking across there, if someone says we're going to forgive the student loan debt of everybody, that means she doesn't get anything, but she worked just as hard or harder than the other, you know, adults she's going to be graduating with. And I, the point you're making, I just wish everybody would stop celebrating for a minute and think through what the lesson these kids, these adults, their adults learned at graduation from that billionaire. He should have been teaching them what he knows because he's a successful business person. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I think it was a missed moment uh, for Mr. Smith because uh, no one is talking about the lessons that he tried to impart upon them. All they're talking about is that he's going to relieve their debt. And again, we cannot have our young people believe that someone's always going to come in and uh, eradicate your woes or, or what have you, because you have to get out there and you have to compete on on the uh, the, uh, the 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 field of of study or the field of of work and things of this nature. And also, parents parents should sit down and and say, you know, we got to plan this through. You know, if this is something we want our kids to do, there's the five twenty nine. A college investment program that you can do, and that's tax-free dollars as long as you're building that up. And so, once again, you know, Angela and I—I I mean, our oldest daughter Aubrey is about to finish physician assistant school. Our youngest daughter, uh, Austin, will graduate undergrad this summer, and we planned this and we did the best that we could as far as eliminating the debt that they would have. And so, you know, Aubrey and Austin, uh, you know, they're, they're going to pretty much go out into the workforce. Uh, ready to tackle things, and and that's how it should be. We, as parents, should be teaching lessons. We, as parents, should be setting our kids up for success also. We should not be sitting around and thinking that someone else is going to do it. And our kids need to understand that there is adversity in life. You need to be strong. You need to Mm -hmm. think your way through it, or else they're going to start looking for safe spaces. Well, safe spaces that probably aren't ever going to be there. And, and um, I think the, the example that you're setting with your daughters and, and the plan that you and your wife set out and have executed, it's an example for everybody. Take a look at that and think through how you're talking to your kids, especially if they're still in high school. This is the time to talk to them about student loan debt, how impossible it is to pay off, what a trap it is, and how it can really damper your future prospects with marriage and getting your first apartment or house, or, you know, buying your first new car. 
These things don't happen when you have huge student debt. Um, I, I have to say, again, Alan, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, you are also the CEO of the National Center for Public Policy Analysis. I don't know how you do all this stuff, but you're, you're, you're busy. You're everywhere. And I appreciate you for uh, coming on today with us. My pleasure. Anytime, Stacey. All the best. All right. Thank you, sir. We'll talk to you again soon. Have a great weekend. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So I want to turn to this charter school issue which is a likely fault line for the 2020 primary. Now, the reason why this is the likely fault line is because there's a huge schism within the Democrats. White Democrats actually oppose charter schools. Minority Democrats love charter schools. Now, first of all, what does that say? Who is most negatively impacted by the policies of Democrats? Black people. Who suffers from higher levels of crime and poverty, incarceration, and lower prospects for the offer of a good Uh, primary education for their kids, black Democrats. So black Democrats have realized that there's something to be said for the charter school movement because they don't want their kids bust out to the suburbs and they don't want um, to have to fight Democrats for spaces in these AAA rated entering suburban schools. So that leaves charter schools and charter schools sometimes are for profit. Sometimes they're not for profit. They come in, they set up shop, usually in an old building that used to be a public school And they set up this program where the parents, in order to get in, you have to kind of go in and interview. It doesn't mean that they're selective like private schools, but what it means is they're looking for parents who are actively involved in the education of their kids. Then what what happens next is they get plugged into the program and they attend the meetings, they come to parent-teacher conference, and they make this amazing, I just, I always get a little overexcited about it because I've been to the tours that they have here in, in St. Louis um, the, one of the educational choice movements here, they have these wonderful, the, they're like get togethers and you can come into the charter schools. You can even tour more than one going from neighborhood to neighborhood and you sit and you listen and you learn about what the charter schools are doing. Well, this is a hot 2020 campaign issue because t- charter schools have become targets for left-leaning candidates. Bernie Sanders called for an end to federal funding to pro- for-profit charter schools he says there should be a prohibition on funding new charter schools, including the not-for-profits. Elizabeth Warren says Sanders is right. She says the for-profit charters are a real problem right now. They're in line with the majority view of their party, but black Americans don't agree. Do you hear the sound of opportunity? I do. Republicans should be speaking to these voters. Republicans believe in school choice and charter schools. That's where the turn can be made. All right, I hear the music. I'm Stacey Washington. We'll be back with more. This is Uncommon Moments. Here's former Super Bowl winning NFL coach Tony Dungy and his wife Lauren sharing from their book Uncommon Marriage. Coaching was all we'd ever known as a couple, but as much as we loved it, it wasn't everything. Our years with the NFL had been tremendous, a great season of our lives, but I knew I was not going to be like some men who coach into their 60s or 70s. My wife and family were higher priorities. I know that Tony's prayer was to be an effective and involved dad and husband. He loves waking up and helping the kids get ready for school. And I know he wants to spend time with me. Those times were so enjoyable for me. I never wanted them to end. Remember, nothing is better than caring for and being with those you love. 
Tony and Lauren Dungy, authors of Uncommon Marriage, learning about lasting love and overcoming life's obstacles together. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. I love AFR. You say it's on the radio, too? Here at American Family Radio, we know that many people find their audio entertainment in other places than the radio. So our programming is available with the AFR app on Apple and Android devices, through Amazon Alexa, and now available on Roku. I just love the podcasts. That too. American Family Radio, streaming our podcast, now available wherever you are. And we're on the radio. Pastor D. The Back to God movement always reminds people that we got to know who we are and whose we are. And we are children of the Most High God. Made in His image and likeness. That's what Genesis 1.26 says. Made in His image and likeness. So that means if Yeshua could walk on water, guess what? We can too. Each weekday at 4 o'clock Central on Urban Family Talk. And let's get... Securing America. Don Cope has been an emergency room nurse at Bay Health for more than 25 years, but says she never had enough resources to focus on human trafficking until now. With this medical committee, we, we devised five different things that we can implement in the hospital setting. The goal was to try to spot and rescue victims, training workers who are in essence on the front lines, providing educational courses for medical professionals with a unique algorithm to monitor cases. Authorities say Delaware is one of many states along the I-95 corridor that have become a hotbed for traffickers who can quickly ship victims to new zip codes up and down the coast. A problem advocate Yolanda Shalabash says has not gotten the attention it deserves. Once people are aware of the red flags, they start seeing it and then the question becomes, what do we do about it? Hospitals will begin rolling out the guidelines within the next year. In Dover, Delaware, Taya Kirkland, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I think that there's a lot of ignorance of socialism. I think our public school system, the universities, our popular culture, they sort of glorify it as a fuzzy-wuzzy Robin Hood-like taking from people who really didn't build that and giving it to more deserving victims. They never tell you that socialism is more than just Denmark or Sweden, that it ultimately ends up like Venezuela and Cuba. And that because it's contrary to human nature, it requires a degree of coercion that's pretty scary. Three great murderers of the 20th century, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, all had the word socialist in their descriptions of their government. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's Victor Davis Hansen. Uh, he's telling the truth. You don't you don't get to murder 100 million people um, when they're doing capitalism. Have you noticed that? There were no capitalists that were performing huge acts of genocide on their own people in the last century. All of the homicidal maniacs, murderers on mass scale, they were all socialists. And they had to murder their citizens because once the citizens start starving to death and want to start rising up in the street, socialists don't want to lose power because they've got food. They've got electricity. They've got niceties. They have all that they need. So they have to start putting these unruly serfs down. They have to murder them. Kind of unbelievable, huh? So, uh, yeah, we, we, 
We know these are the truths of socialism. The question is, how are we going to talk about it? And I think the Republicans, you know, I got I got to put on my criticism hat. Republicans are not doing their best work on making sure that Americans know exactly what they get if they decide to go down this path. Americans should be told in no uncertain terms that socialism kills. It destroys your options. In a society where we have options galore, so many options, it's actually overwhelming and we're unable to cope with them all. It's unfathomable, but yet, obviously, it is fathomable because we see you know, a huge portion of Americans now admitting that they think, on the left, leftist Americans, that, that socialism would be a better option. These people are admitting this in surveys that they're taking on their cell phones while they're sitting in their air-conditioned houses with their talking dishwashers and talking washers and dryers. They're sitting there with their, you know, 50, 60, $70,000 vehicles in their two and three car garages. They're sitting in their suburban areas and in their high rises, their condos, their apartments, their co-ops. They're sitting in America where they literally have the option of saying, this month I live here. Next month I want to live over there. there. There's no one to tell them, well, you don't own that place. So you live there until the government tells you to move somewhere else. They don't understand the kind of freedom they would be forfeiting in making a decision like the one that we're hearing is, is, is so important for them to make. Uh, so I just, it, it's so, it's, it's really, it's a downer, right? It, it's a downer. Um, all right. So let's now turn to Clyburn. Now he had this long raging interview and I apologize in advance for making you listen to the sound of his voice, but here he is. He says the majority of Democrats would actually vote no on impeachment today, but it's an itch that he doesn't want them to scratch. Just, just you know, gird your loins. Here he is. Number two. Oh, the majority would be no. Uh, it's you not as big. Yes, I do. It's not as big a majority today uh, or yesterday as today, uh, but a majority uh, will be uh, for staying steady, staying focused, stay on what we're doing, because this thing is moving in our direction. There is said- an itch in our yeah. caucus for impeachment, but let's not uh, deal with that yet that we will reach a point when we will say, now is the time. I don't think we've reached that point yet. Uh, It's almost like anything else. I may not know exactly what it is, but I think we'll recognize it when we see it. So additionally, in the conversation, he, uh, he said that he was concerned um, that people wouldn't go about doing the impeachment process that people wouldn't um, like Democrats would rush into it and they wouldn't have dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's and that it would fail because of that. Now I just, I just want you to just, just think about this for a quick second. Okay. This guy is saying that he fully believes that the impeachment process can move forward, but they have to be careful about how they execute on it because they don't want to fail. If they, if they vote to impeach the president, they don't want it to fail to actually pass the House. He doesn't say anything about the fact that they would be impe- voting to impeach the president based upon, I'm not sure what. Like, I am not sure what exactly they would be voting to impeach him on. Um, 
so what I'm interested in is having like every every bit of what's going on with the Democrats as it pertains to impeachment seems to be predicated on the knowledge that there's a there's this horrible crime that the president has committed and Mueller didn't find it. So they've got to find it. And the way for them to find it is to basically perform the same investigation that Mueller performed. Only their job isn't to investigate the president. It was Mueller's job. It was actually his job as special counsel to do that. Their job as congressional members is really it's around the purse strings of the United States. Yes, they pass legislation on other areas, but primarily Congress controls the purse. So they should be working on the budget, balancing it, lessening our debt, our, our, and, and really the, the deficit that we have, lessening that. And there are so many great plans. And if they were not working on this, they could, they could do that. Now, I know yesterday I caught the or, uh, you know, I caught the exchange where or it was actually video of the exchange from the day before of Nancy Pelosi. She was standing in front of the podium and she just made the nasty statement about the president hiding something, engaging in a cover up. And the president had come in and said, you know, as long as you're investigating me, I'm not I'm not, you know, you can whatever I'm I'm out. And she was rattled. And so I, I know what that looks like because I've been rattled before. So there, there's no reason for anyone to say, well, she wasn't really right. She was. She was slightly shaky. You could tell she had been thrown off by his comment. And she was trying to negotiate the entire situation in front of a podium with cameras on her. And I thought it was pretty unfortunate that that's the way it went down. But she brought that on herself. You know, didn't her daughter say that she could cut your head off and you wouldn't even know she'd been in the room? If that's truly who she is, why can't she rein in the Democrats and tell them it's time to move on? So I'm, I'm kind of on the fence because part of me is in that, like, if, if they decide to impeach him, they're, they've handed 2020 to Donald Trump. And that's what I want. So please, you know, please, Democrats, vote to impeach. Do it. But on the other hand, the adult in me says, really, it's a waste of time and taxpayer dollars and why can't we just think for a second about what this means for America, our standing in the world, um, the negotiations and things that we have going on with other nations? If impeachment proceedings are going on, we're not being taken seriously around the world. So one of the things that is is most upsetting about this is that if if this were still before the Mueller report had been re- released, you could kind of say, well, you know, could it could. This could theoretically still be something they're planning on doing because there's a possibility that he's guilty. Now we know he's not guilty. We know he's the, we know, we know. We have to move on from this. It, there, there's no good reason to stick around with it. There's no good reason to continue on with it. Um, and what I want to see done, obviously, is that we would let this go. So moving on. Um, now, Donald Trump Jr. actually said a couple things about the, the Pelosi making the statement about the, the so-called cover-up. Um, and he made a couple of points that I think are worth highlighting. Specifically, he said that the Democrats don't want the president to rack up any wins. 
He also added that the Democratic presidential candidates are running on the the idea that government is failing Americans. And government is failing Americans. Here's a newsflash. We know this. We know that government fails Americans. That's why we want less of it. Now, we know that the president, once he gets on one of these, you know, tears, which is, it's great, um, that once he sets his mind, he's done. And he's saying that there's not going to be any infrastructure, which the Democrats want to get an infrastructure bill done so they can put a little bit of pork back into their districts and kind of run on that. And it's the only place where they can actually take something that they can agree with on the president and it's neutral enough that they don't have to appear that they're working with him and they can still vilify him. And um, so that, that, hey, if that's the road they want to go down, he's now drawn a line in the sand. He's not doing any infrastructure and I'm fine with it. Now, there's also the issue of the, uh, the opposing side or the flip side of the coin for all of these investigations. Apparently, there's a list of exculpatory evidence that the FBI failed to show the FISA court. Um, and this is a series of documents that expose President Obama's deep state spygate plot because President Obama was in on it. And this was kind of fascinating when I was reading an article about how James Comey has literally, um, in his book, he implicates President Obama. He's describing in detail meetings in the Situation Room, one in particular where James Comey, who's then head of the FBI, gives information to the president and says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to share with now President-elect Trump this information from the dossier about, you know, the, the Russian prostitutes, et cetera, et cetera. And President Obama looks directly at James Comey, lifts his eyebrows, and then turns away from him. So an acknowledgement that he knew that Comey was going to give a summary of the dossier to then President-elect Trump. So there's no universe in which President Obama isn't aware of what's going on and a part of it. People will say that, oh, he couldn't have been, he wasn't, a, but they're not being honest. That That's not the truth. That That's not what we know to be the fact. So Sarah Carter talked about this bucket five list of documents, which she says includes transcripts and tapes of former Trump advisors, George Papadopoulos and Carter Page. Um, and these tapes, these two people are saying, Papadopoulos and Page are saying that there's no way the campaign, Trump campaign, was working with Russians. And Obama's FBI and Justice Department did not share those tapes with the FISA court. So apparently the release of this information could begin within a week to, to 10 days. And this is the first time that the American people would know for sure that the FBI was in possession of a piece of intelligence from Christopher Steele the author of the famous or infamous Steele dossier that was debunked before they went to the FISA court. So just, just to circle back around, they had knowledge that there were verifiable denials from two individuals working on the Trump campaign that they, they were not working with Russia, that they were aware that the FBI was interested in whether or not they were working with Russia and that they denied it. Yet 
the FBI and the DOJ still went to the FISA court to get renewals on the spying that they were doing. So they weren't verifying the information in the dossier. It had already been debunked. They were simply reusing it to continue to spy because they wanted to. And this is the kind of stuff that Democrats yelling and screaming about impeachment keeps the American media from discussing this. Remember, fired FBI Director James Comey actually signed off on one of the first FISA warrant applications. The FBI had found Steele's document not to be credible, and DOJ official Bruce Orr told him and other ranking members of the Bureau that Steele was anti-Trump, that his work was being done on behalf of the Clinton campaign, that the work could not be trusted. Still, Comey told then-President-elect Trump in January 2017 that the Steele dossier contents were not to be believed after he signed off on the first FISA warrant. The duplicity here is stunning, which is why I keep wondering, uh, why again are we posting pictures of James Comey in the Redwood Forest looking up, saying so many questions? Why is he still the darling of the media? Why do people still give his interviews credible? Uh, you know, they, they treat him like he's some kind of an expert. This is a man who said to President Trump, the dossier, we have it. We know it's not real. We know it's, you know, opposition research. He's signing FISA warrants to the FISA court. These are things that you can like go to prison for. He's signing this stuff to get applications renewed for, for surveillance. So the double speak with him was like on a daily. All right, y'all. If you are leaving us now, God bless from the heartland. Have a fantastic weekend. If you're sticking around, we have more show for you after onenewsnow.com. Up next.